0: We are going to be in the book of Acts. Uh, what we've been doing as a church is is studying the the scripture together. We've been looking at the story of the early church and, and what it has for us. Um, but before we do that, I first of all just want to thank um, Hunter for sharing his story. I know it uh, takes a lot of courage to come up here and be vulnerable. I uh, just really appreciate you being vulnerable with us and sharing God's redemption and restoration in your life, and, and I thank Dallas for sharing his heart and passion and vision for ministry, and we're just so encouraged of what's going on at Rock Solid and how God is advancing the kingdom and bringing restoration in the lives of so many through you, so just really appreciate you guys being here this morning and sharing your story. And so we, we are going to jump in the book of Acts together. Now, if you're new here, what we do as a church often is we, we read the Bible together and we study the Bible together because this is where we believe that God speaks to us and equips us and reveals us more about himself and who we are as people. And really the book of Acts, if you're unfamiliar with it, the book of Acts is all about the story of the early church. Uh, If you have a question of how did Christianity begin and where is it going, well, the book of Acts is really the great uh, place to start. And when we look at a movement like Christianity, when we look at the early beginnings like we see in the book of Acts all the way up to the global church today, uh, a key question to ask is, why would anyone become a Christian? Why are there people who consider themselves followers of Jesus today? And, and when we consider the world today there are over two billion Christians today and we, we realize that there's people from all cultures, all ethnicities. We see people speaking different languages, functioning in different social statuses and classes. We see Christians who are top Ivy League professors, Nobel and Pulitzer Prize winners. We see Christians who are leaders of health organizations and physicists and philosophers. And the question is, well, why are all these people Christians? How do we make sense of this, of something that happened 2,000 years ago in the life of Jesus? Well, part of the answer to that question is that there are Reasonable reasons and arguments as to why people become Christians. There are historical, ethical, rational, and logical reasons for us to believe in Christianity. And giving reasons for those beliefs is an area of study called apologetics. Now, who here has ever heard of the word apologetics before? Talked a little bit about as a church. If you don't know what it means, uh, basically it's a word that comes from Greek that talks about giving a defense, a defense for what you believe and why you believe it. And, and so this is the area of study called apologetics. And so when we look at apologetics, really it's the science and art of defending Christianity's basic truth claims. And the calling that we have as the church, as the people of God, is to function in this capacity. Because there are a lot of questions and understandings that we need to figure out about why people even become Christians. And there's a lot of things that the church has to defend and argue and define of what it means to be a Christian. And so this role of the church then is to function as apologists, bringing an explanation, bringing a reason For why some of these beliefs exist and the story we're going to be looking at this morning in the life of Paul is this beautiful example of what a life of an apologist looks like and so we're looking at a story of Paul now if you're new with us and you have no idea who Paul is uh, Paul is a very fascinating person of history Uh, he was a first-century Jewish man And he was a Jewish man, and when the Christian movement began, he was someone who was basically tracking down Christians, sort of bounty hunter style, and arresting them, and even killing them at times. And so Paul was someone who was very antagonistic against the movement of Christianity, but something absolutely changed the life of Paul. What happened to Paul's life? God knocked him off his horse, so to say. He he witnessed and experienced the resurrected Jesus. And it absolutely transformed everything in Paul's life. And after he experiences the resurrected Jesus, Paul becomes someone who was persecuting the church and and trying to destroy the movement of Christianity to someone who actually began to plant so many churches throughout the Greco-Roman world. And so Paul is this person who is absolutely influential in the life of the early church. And one of the stories we're going to read from him this morning is another story of how he would go from city to city talking about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And so let's jump into this story together in Acts 16 or Acts 17 verses 16. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, I have it up on the screen for you as well. And so this is what the passage says by the historian Luke. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so what city is Paul in right now? He's in Athens, right? Uh, Athens was this massive center of intellectual thought. Even today, there's, there's so many, excuse me, different temples and things of places of worship. And really, when, when Paul enters into the city of Athens, he, he sees what he says is a city full of idols, And what he's talking about is historians say there would have probably been around 30,000 idols in this city. Now, we're thinking of idols as statues and things of that nature, but Paul realized that there's something deeper going on. Because when he sees these idols, all these statues around the city, what does it do to him? How does he respond? It provokes him. He's almost outraged by this. And one of the reasons that he's outraged by this is because he sees the deeper reality of what's going on behind all these idols. He he realizes that when people live for anything other than God, and if that's where they place their value and their energy and their purpose, then everything is going to crumble around them and they're going to live with despair and anxiety and hurt and pain. And even we hear from the story of Hunter and many others could tell the story of of battles of addiction and hardship. When you live for something that begins to control your life, all it does is bring destruction. And and so Paul is is provoked. He's, He's outraged because he sees all these people worshiping false idols. And he has this deep pain in his mind because he realizes that they need Jesus. And so here what happens next? Verse 17. How does Paul respond? Well, he he goes to the synagogue, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. And this is basically the first thing that Paul would do every time he went to a new city. Why would he usually talk to the Jews first in a new city? Especially about Jesus. But yeah, because they they knew the Old Testament story, right? They they knew the history of the Old Testament. They knew all the language behind the coming of Christ. And so they were a a bridge point, so to say, of familiar understanding. And so he would go to these synagogues. He would teach to them about Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament story. But something comes different in our story today. Uh, Because Paul comes to a context in which he's not dealing with people that know the Old Testament story, which Jesus comes out of, but he's dealing with philosophers, Greek philosophers. And we read in this passage he's dealing with two types of philosophers. What do we read there? Epicureans and Stoic philosophers, right? So so this is the, the, the context in which Paul is teaching Jesus about now. And so he he begins by engaging these two major philosophical worldviews. Now, Epicureanism is is actually pretty similar to a a secular culture today uh, because Epicureanums had this belief that all the gods were composed of these little atoms that were so small they dwelt in spaces between worlds, okay? I know it doesn't really connect in our Western minds, but this is what they believed. So they believe that gods were completely disconnected from this world. That gods had no place in this world. They're removed from ordinary life. And so Epicurus, who was the founder then, he believed in this form of hedonism where basically pleasure and the pursuit of pleasure is the greatest purpose of life and the greatest thing that you could accomplish as a being. In other words, if the gods are not with us and they're not keeping us accountable or have anything that we should live up to, it's basically eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? Does that not sound like our culture today? 100%. We live in a culture that just says pursue pleasure at all costs, go party, go enjoy. There's no moral standards in this life. There's no purpose in this life. So go do whatever you want, create whatever you want, be whatever you want. Everything is just the pursuit of pleasure. That is 100% our culture today, is it not? This is what Paul is speaking into, the Epicureanism. Now, The Stoics, on the other hand, this other philosophical belief, uh, they had a different view. They they believed that God was in everything. They were what's called pantheists. God is in everything. God is in nature. God is in all the systems and structures of thought. Um, They would be very similar to today's Hindus who have this, this concept of millions of gods for every aspect of deity and they were all about this self control about how do we align ourselves with all these understandings of gods and how they aligned with life forces in the purposes of life and so they were very different from the epicureanism so this is who Paul is engaging in this conversation and as Paul is preaching about Jesus uh, one of the things that he's began to develop is saying to them that no You, as Epicureans, think that God is disconnected from everything. But Paul is going to say, no, God is personal. God is relational. God is with us, and he wants relationship with us. And and then he's going to tell the Stoics, who, who believe that God is in everything and that we can form and understand God in everything, Paul is going to say, no, God is transcendent. God is beyond this world. God is beyond us. He's the creator of the universe. He's not one with the universe. And so this is really the, the argument that Paul is bringing forth. And so they get very intrigued by this. And so what do we see happening? Well, they, they offer him an opportunity to share more. And so verse 19 says, And they took him and brought him to the Arab... Aropoc- oh, that's going to mess me up right now. <laughs> Arockabit, my mouth is so dry. <laughs> Thank you, beautiful. What a wonderful wife, eh? Eropagus, there we go. A little more moisture in there, right? Eropagus. And so they brought him up to the rock and basically the the point there is basically to share your worldview, sort of defend your your perspectives and beliefs. And they said this, "...may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears." In other words, they never understood or were taught about who Jesus was. "...we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing excepting telling or hearing something new." And historians tell you what, what would happen is, is often these philosophers were always on the lookout for these new worldviews and these new discussions that they could bring these new gods into the Parthion. And so this is really an invitation to see how credible this teaching of Jesus is. And so we see that Paul begins to teach and Paul begins to treat, uh, uh, address the uh, Areopagus Now, we have like a summarized version here. Uh, this is really a summarized version of Paul's sermon. Uh, it's like a minute long to read, but most likely this would have been anywhere from an hour up to three hours. Uh, it was an incredibly long speech that the historian Luke is sort of summarizing here. But this is the summary that Luke gives us about Paul's speech. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And so this is sort of a compliment. Paul doesn't come in with, with um, a, a, condemna- a condemning attitude. He doesn't come in attacking them and mocking them. He says that I perceive that you're spiritual people, that you're, you're seeking after God. He says that's a good thing. And then he says, For I pass along and observe the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to what? To the unknown God. And so they would have had all these idols around the city. They would have had all these things and places of the the God of art and the the God of music and the, the God of communication and the God of the sea. And they would have had all these altars that you basically appease to all these gods. But the, the thing that Paul brings up is, oh, there is an unknown God. And what this really was, this just-in-case God. In other words, just in case we don't appease all the right gods and just in case these actually aren't true gods, this is the unknown God that we appease just in case all of the other ones are wrong. That's the mentality going on. It's sort of like some people when they, when they come to a crisis in life and they sort of just cry out to God and say, God, if you save me from this, I'll do this. It's just this cry out. They have no understanding, no relationship with God, but they still cry out to God. This is what they're doing. This is the mentality they have. They, they want to make sure that all their bases are covered. And, and at the end of the day, no one knew how many gods there actually were. And so, again, this is this concept of we need to cover all of our bases. We make sure that we haven't offended all of them. This is whatever God is out there will offer sacrifices to this one too. And so Paul catches on this. And he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, what's interesting here is what Paul is thinking here and hinting at them is they don't know God at all. They have no concept of God at all. He says, I'm going to tell you about one more God you don't know. Well, Paul is saying, you guys think you have all this plethora of gods and I'm just going to add to it. But he's saying, no, you actually don't have a concept of God at all. And so he gets a little more confrontational here, actually. And he's saying that your whole understanding of worship, your whole understanding of God, your whole understanding of of ritual practices and ritual systems of God is actually unknown to you. He's confronting them. In other words, he's saying that they are ignorant of who the real God is. And so he says, let me introduce you to him. Let me tell you what God is like. And so now Paul is going to continue this explanation of comparing these polytheistic gods of the Roman Empire to the true God. And so he begins by by saying uh, this in, in verse 24. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And and so what's Paul's first statement about who God is? That God is the one who made the world. That God is creator. God is creator. Now, Now this is quite fascinating because... Uh, Epicureans and even the Stoics, they they have this concept that the universe is eternal as well. And and what we've realized ever since the 1900s is that the universe is not eternal. The universe had what? A beginning, right? We we call that the Big Bang Theory, that the universe had a beginning. We know that the universe is expanding. Uh, And the implication that ever since the 1900s has been pretty crucial because if the universe had a beginning, then it must have a start. It must have a cause. It must have a creator. Right? And, And so this concept then of God as creator is important for us. And so Paul is saying that No, God is the creator of the world. He's not found in the world. He's actually separate from him. And Paul is saying all your your tribal gods, so to say, have all their powers over these different facets of life, whether it's protection in the sea or forms of communication and all these things. But he's saying the true God is actually the sustainer and creator and empower over all things. That's what he's getting at. And he goes on to say, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, what was the whole thing that the the Romans were doing with gods? They were trying to appease them. Why? Because all their Roman gods were very needy, right? They were always asking for something, they were always demanding something from people. And, and Paul says that if they're truly gods, they wouldn't need anything. How could God need anything? And so Paul is saying God is transcendent. He's not dependent upon us or the world or anything. Well, what does transcendent means? It means that God is above time and entire, above the entire physical universe. He's outside of time and space. He's outside of material. He doesn't need anything from this physical world. He simply created it. And this is another thing for us to consider as well because for, us, for those of us who live in space and time and material and we see a world of space and time and material, for that world to come into existence, what do we need? We need a being who is outside of space and time Material. So we need a being who is spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. And who is that? God, right? And this God is transcendent. He doesn't need anything from us. He's the one that created us. So Paul goes on to say, verse 26, he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So, in other words, God created all of humanity with the purpose of what? Verse 27 That they should do what? Seek God. In other words, why do we exist in this world? Why are we beings who live and breathe? Is so that we can seek God, so that we can be restored in our relationship with our creator. If you're someone who's wrestling with the questions of why do I exist? Is there purpose to this life? Is there meaning to this life? Do I have any value? The answer is yes, you were created to live to know God, to be in relationship with God. And so Paul says you should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. And Paul is saying the greatest pursuit in life is to know God. The greatest purpose in life is to know God. See, the Greek and Roman gods were always a way to get something else. They were always a way to accomplish something else. But Paul is saying God in himself is reward enough. And so God wants us to seek him and find him. Now, What's beautiful is Paul brings up a clarification next. He says that even though God is transcendent, even though God is beyond us, there's something that we need to know in order to seek Him. That even though He's so glorious and transcendent, we can actually know Him. And so this is what Paul says next. At the end of verse 27 and 28, he says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In other words, even though he's transcendent, God is close. And then he says, verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, Paul does something pretty remarkable here because he's, he's quoting something. Does anyone know where Paul is quoting from? Any guesses? He gives us a hint, as some of their own poets have said. No, it's not coming from the Old Testament at all. Paul is actually quoting a song written about Zeus, one of the Greek gods, and he's seen there's this uh, poem written by a Stoic poet that basically talked about how we are indeed the offspring of God. We are created by God, and in him we live and move and have our being. That's crucial, but God is close to us. And so Paul quotes them as saying, you guys know this. You should know that even though God is transcendent, you can have relationship with him. And so he goes on to say this, um, verse 29 Um, He says, being then God's offspring, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of that divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of God. And so what's the next thing that Paul says? He says, you can't worship God with idols and images, If God is as great, if God is transcendent, if God is beyond us, then how can we turn God into some little statue? How can we turn God into some little carving? And he's confronting them. He's saying, if God is creator, you're foolish to think you can reduce him to something you hold in your hand. God is not like this. And he's challenging them. He's bringing up something that we all do as humans. Because what we do as humans is we want to be in control. We want to be God. We want to form our own religions and our own understanding of who God is. Therefore, we create God the way that we want him to be created on our terms. That is exactly what idolatry is. And so Paul says we don't get to decide who God is. We don't get to decide and form and fashion God the way that we want Him to be. And so if God is a creator, you're foolish to think that we can form Him into something else. And, and a passage that popped into my mind as I'm reading this was a very interesting story from the, the prophet Isaiah. And this is a story of idolatry. And this is sort of a, a story that mocks the concept of, of carving idols. We read this in Isaiah 44, it says, He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he also makes what? He makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. And and so what's this prophet saying? He's saying, this is what we do. We we take the natural resources of this world, the way the world works, and we we take this log, so to say, and we use some of it to basically warm our houses. We take some of it to bake some bread. And then the rest of it, we turn into a god. And, And this is... How Isaiah continues, half of it he burns in the fire, over the other half he eats meats he roasted and satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, I am warm, I have seen the fire, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. Isn't that the way the human psyche works? Where where we can easily take the things of this world and make them ultimate? And again, when we talk about idols, I I want our minds to go beyond just physical statues, so to say. When we're talking about idols, we're we're talking about something so much profound than that because an idol is anything that we make more important than God. An idol is anything that absorbs our heart and our imagination more than God. An idol is anything that we seek to give us that only God can give us. And, and an idol is something that we, we feel like if we attain it, then our lives have meaning and purpose and value and significance. That's what an idol is. And, and this is what we do with idols is we take the things of this world And we call upon them and we demand them to give us everything. And so, what's an example of this? Well, David Foster Wallace, has anyone heard of him? He's a very famous author, he's a professor as well. Uh, Sadly, he's a man who, who took his life by suicide. He was a man who struggled with depression and drug abuse for many years. Uh, But he has this very famous speech that he gave to uh, uh, Kenyon College and a speech that he called, This is Water. And and let me just read this to you just to get a framework for how we we so fall under this category of idolatry today. He says this. He wasn't a Christian, but he, he picks on something very crucial for us to understand. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Anyone else testify to that? I mean, we heard that from Hunter's story this morning, didn't we? There's many more stories that could be told of that as well. Pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly and when time and age start showing you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you on one level we all know this stuff already but the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They are the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you are doing. Pretty powerful thought, isn't it? And what Wallace is doing here is he's warning us as humans is that we have all these ideas about what is going to fulfill us, about what is going to satisfy us, of what is going to bring us contentment, of what is going to bring us meaning and purpose and value. And this is all the day-to-day activities of what we're pursuing. We're all worshiping in that sense. But the question we all need to be confronted with is the question, well, what are we worshiping and does it deserve our worship? See, this was was Paul's pain as he enters into Athens. As he sees all these people worshiping things that would only destroy them. And so Paul says this, He gives us warning out of this. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's saying, Now that Jesus has come, you need to turn from worshiping the false gods in your life, the false idols that will only bring destruction in your life. And you need to turn away from all those things that have left you disappointed and disillusioned and turn to God. Why? Because God has fixed a day where he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And Paul is saying Jesus has come with full assurance. In other words, proof of resurrection, proof that he is God, proof that he alone is worthy of worship. And Jesus alone is the answer to that worship. And so how do we respond to this? How do we process this? Well, I want us to look at three different areas just briefly together. This concept of, of how do we function as an apologist then? How do we take this and really understand it? Well, first of all, we need to feel. Uh, John Stott, who is a past, uh, pastor and commentator, he, he says this. He says, the reason we can't speak the way Paul speaks is because we can't see the way Paul sees and the reason we can't see the way Paul sees is because we don't feel what Paul feels. And again, when Paul enters into Athens, what's his response? He is provoked. He's outraged by all the idols I see. And, and I look to us and I, I realize that I don't believe we feel the full weight of idolatry in our culture the way we shouldn't. The way that Paul feels it in Athens. I mean, has anyone here ever had a loved one that was making some horrible life decisions? Anyone? Now, how do you feel in those circumstances? You see someone you love taking a path in life going in the complete wrong direction, and you feel it, don't you? you feel the the outrage, you feel the burden of their mistakes, yet at the same time you feel a concern, don't you? You feel a compassion. You feel a care. Now to help that loved one, if you only show them compassion, what's going to change? Nothing. If you only show the compassion... Nothing's going to change. Why? Because you won't have the courage to speak into their lives the way that you need to. You won't have the courage to confront the issues and the idols that are actually destroying them. But on the other hand, if you try and help that loved one only with outrage, what's that going to (laughs) accomplish? It's probably going to make things worse, right? It's probably going to distance the relationship. It's probably going to ostracize them even more. There's probably going to be more issues because they won't feel like you care about them or want what is best for them. You won't be able to understand them and be gracious to them, and they will probably just turn away from you. And so what we see in Paul is such this beautiful balance of feeling between outrage and compassion. His heart was so burdened by the idols and sin that he witnessed, and that's why he's so courageous to speak against them. But at the same time, his heart was so compassionate that he interacted and engaged the people with graciousness and love. And that's the way we need to feel about idolatry, isn't it? We need to feel the destruction that it brings, not only in our own lives, but the lives of others, and come with it with such a compassion to offer grace to those who are suffering. The other thing is we need to see. Why do we need to see? Paul was outraged because he saw idols everywhere. And again, this was very literal. In Athens, there was Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. There was Ares, the god of power. There was Apollo, the goddess of music and art. There was all these gods that he witnessed. And what angers him isn't just seeing a bunch of statues. What provokes him is realizing that underneath all of this was a false worship. And he saw underneath all the art, underneath all the business, underneath all the government, underneath all the philosophy, was that the problem was not just bad things, but even good things that had become ultimate and distanced people from relationship with God he saw a deeper understanding of what was going on. Now, how do we see some of these idols in our culture? Well, this weekend was was March Madness. Anyone have some time watching March Madness Final Four? I, I'm a big basketball fan, but I know there's not many of you out there. Basketball is important to me, but think about this. I... I uh, wasn't able to watch Final Four to, uh, last night because Dallas was there, and that was a much better option. I'm not blaming you, Dallas, so don't get <laughs> mad at me. <laughs> yeah, you don't watch it. And even we look at tomorrow night, we have a prayer meeting at the church, and that's the final game. And so I'm going miss that too, praying, right? And, and I think about it, and you process it, <laughs> And I begin to—I'm going to get emotional thinking about it, I'm crying about basketball. This is weird, right? I'm—I'm <laughs> I'm feeling what Paul's feeling, but—and I begin to think: Does it not grieve me? Does it not provoke me like it would a Paul? that so much glory and celebration and excitement is just about a stupid game instead of our God, that grieves me. And and I think this is sort of what what Paul was experiencing, that he, he saw something, but he saw what was underneath it. And even when we look at sports, which again, is sports a bad thing? No, it can even be a good thing. But when we see something like that become ultimate in our culture, to see where so much time and energy and meaning and purpose is devoted by so many people to things, even even the the stands and people worshiping the game and as fans, we, we realize that so much of how we function as humans in in regards to worship is so disconnected from God. I mean, is thousands of people literally in a stadium screaming at people to win a game. Is that literally not the definition of worship? (laughs) Right? And yet, do our hearts, do we find them provoked when God isn't getting the worship that he alone is worthy of? And we could talk about the same thing even with rock solid and when we talk about addictions. When we see people who are so hopeless that they they give their entire existence to escapism through drugs or alcohol or whatever means and everything in their life becomes consumed by it, we, we need to see the deeper reasons behind that. We need to see that this is because an issue of worship we need to have our hearts not just feel but our eyes to see what is going on the last thing is we need to witness again this is a major theme throughout the book of acts is witnessing to the good news of jesus christ why do we need to witness because idols are failing people all around our world aren't they Idols are failing people over and over again, and sometimes talking about Jesus just begins by showing people that their current answer to purpose and meaning and value in their life, the things that they're living for, isn't working. We see so many people who live unsatisfied, so many people who live depressed, so many people who live overwhelmed, so many people who live addicted, so many people who live in anxiousness, that they need the hope of Jesus. They need to know Jesus. They need to know that it's only in Jesus that they're going to find satisfaction and security and salvation and freedom. This is what we need to do, and this is our calling as the church And so what we'll see is, as we witness, there's going to be various responses. I mean, Paul experiences as well. We see that when they heard of the resurrection, some mocked. In other words, some are going to reject the message. Others say, we will hear you again about this. In other words, they wanted to hear more. They were interested. When Paul went out from their midst, some men joined him and believed. In other words, they became followers of Jesus. And even Luke mentions in historical account among who were Dionysus, the Arapagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. And these were high-ranking officials in the Roman Empire who came to believe. But at the end of the day, as we witness, there's going to be various responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our only responsibility is to witness and our responsibility is to let them know about Jesus. Because church, we, we love lost people too much to see them left in hopelessness, don't we? Amen? Amen? We We love people too much to see them left in despair. We love people too much to watch them destroy their lives by worshiping things that don't matter or things that destroy them. That's our heart. That's what we need to realize. And so, let me pray to that extent. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, we, we first of all come in confession. All of us here, whether we follow Jesus or not that we have idols in our life. We have things that we make ultimate, that we think are going to bring satisfaction and joy and contentment apart from you. And yet we have realized time and time again that these idols do not satisfy These idols do not deliver us. They do not bring salvation. They simply destroy. But when we come to you, Jesus, the one who is worthy of our worship, we find life, abundance of life. We find peace. We find forgiveness and freedom. We find joy that surpasses all understanding. We find a renewed relationship with our Creator. Lord, we thank you for these gifts. And we pray that we would turn to you in response to them. Amen.